Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 12th. And judging from the newspaper headlines this morning, the, the world may be on the verge of some sort of meltdown. Uh, there was or there is an Israeli, supposedly an Israeli attack on a nuclear site in Iran, a, a cyber attack. Uh, the New York Times, which is always a good source for this sort of thing, quotes the Iranian foreign minister vowing revenge against Israel. And of course, the Israelis are not commenting, but third party sources suggest that the Israelis are indeed responsible. I'm not sure if this particular attack will result in World War III, but attacks like this seem to be making the chances of, a, of, a, of another thermonuclear catastrophe more likely. One person who's given a lot of thought to how the world is going to end is my guest today on the show. She's a very distinguished New York Times journalist and an expert on uh, cyber criminality. She's a Silicon Valley-based writer. Uh, she has a new best-selling book out. This is how they tell me the world ends, uh, the cyber weapons arms race. Her name, many of you will know her, is uh, Nicole Pearl Roth. Uh, Nicole, these headlines this morning, should we be worried or is it just an, another day in the history of cyber criminality? Nice to be with you this morning. So we actually have no evidence that this was a cyber-induced attack. Um, so far, sourcing has said that this may have been more likely to have been a physical strike uh, in, the, in the form of an explosion on Natanz's underlying grid. Uh, we know that the Iranians have taken several steps to pull Natanz off the larger grid in Iran and also to air gap their systems, that is remove them from any kind of outside access, which was also the case more than 10 years ago when we discovered Stuxnet, the computer worm that had infiltrated its systems and was able to actually decimate a thousand Iranian uh, centrifuges just by uh, messing with the speeds at which its rotors spun those centrifuges. But this looks to be a physical attack. So no evidence yet that this was actually cyber related. Yeah, you, you spend quite a lot of time in, in your book talking about Stuxnet. Here we have the Wikipedia page. I'm not sure if that's ever been... Um... That's ever been hacked. Uh, you write about Stuxnet saying it hit Iran where it valued itself most, its nuclear program. The Israelis, as you suggested, have hit, or as your newspaper suggested this morning, have hit uh, Iran where it hurts as well, their nuclear program. You suggest there may be a distinction between a digital attack and a physical attack. Are they possible, though, to separate these days? Isn't every physical attack bound up somehow in digital? That's right. We've seen cyber become a critical part of any kind of kinetic uh, warfare operation these days, primarily by our adversaries, because they can never expect to match the United States in terms of its military might. 
but they've seen that they have a huge asymmetrical advantage when it comes to cyber. They don't necessarily need to hit us directly at the NSA or the Pentagon. They can hit American companies and defense contractors, and in some cases cause even more damage by taking aim at the US private sector. And one thing I always remind people is that more than 80% of America's critical infrastructure is owned and operated by the private sector. And now the private sector and its lobbyists have been very resistant to any kind of legislation or regulation that would mandate that they have better cybersecurity standards. Anything we've seen come down has come in the form of a presidential executive order and often really lacks teeth in terms of forcing these critical infrastructure operators to up their security. And some of these operators are companies like PG&E that have vast security budgets and resources at their disposal to build up many intelligence agencies that can track nation state threats and put in place expensive intrusion detection technology. But many of them are these small municipal operators like the one at a water treatment facility in Florida that was hacked the other week and their hackers were able to get in and up the level of Y, L-Y-E, in the water and could have badly poisoned the population of this small Florida town had someone not been sitting at their screen and noticed their cursor move around into the chemical controls. Is this, this, uh, this, this isn't no. uh, solar winds, is it? This is, the solar winds hack is another example of, um, of, uh, of, of hackery at its best or worst. Is that fair? Yes, that's right. So, you know, the water treatment facility was completely separate from Solar Winds, but what Solar Winds is is a company based in Texas that has deep access to its client system, so it lets IT administrators just get a glimpse of what cloud applications they're connected to, where their data is moving, which personal devices of its employees are connected to the network, that sort of thing. And to have that kind of visibility, it, it mandates that they have deep access to their clients' networks. And Russia, we believe, used that access as a Trojan horse to essentially plant malware that could have allowed them to get in to all 18,000 SolarWinds clients who had downloaded the latest software. And among its clients were US federal agencies, but also many operators who control the power grid. And we think that the SolarWinds attack was aimed at classic espionage. That is, that they were after emails and strategy planning documents from at least nine federal agencies that they ultimately compromised. We don't think that they were in there to turn off the lights or ransomware systems or destroy data on the other end. But the big risk that we are opening our eyes to right now is that they are really only two clicks away once they are in these systems from that kind of data destruction or degradation. And until we're confident that we have kicked them out of our systems, that is the risk that we are running. And it has been like this for some time. We have seen adversaries implant themselves in our systems, not necessarily to destroy the systems on the other end, but to maintain a level of access. So should they need to, should there be a larger geopolitical implication or tension point that they could actually do damage on our private sector systems. And in this case, we think the solar winds attack was really after our federal agencies. Nicole, um, as you know better than I do, I'm sure um, 
Biden's infrastructure plan, uh, almost a $2 trillion plan now is, is in D.C. and it's going through one kind of shredder or another. How much of, of the infrastructure plan do you think should be dedicated to rebuilding digital infrastructure to protect the United States from foreign attack? Well, the thing is, and you sort of alluded to this in your previous question, is that you can almost you, you can't divorce cyber from critical infrastructure anymore because for the past decade and longer, we have been baking software into our water treatment facilities, into our dams, into our electrical grid, into our nuclear plants. So we can't really talk about improving our critical infrastructure without talking about cybersecurity. It is core now to the security of our critical infrastructure. And so it is going to be a major uh, part of Biden's infrastructure plan. And I've seen, um, I've seen his, his administration talk about this, that you know, in addition to improving critical in infrastructure, they wanna bring broadband to communities that don't have it. Um, but I have not seen enough talk about cybersecurity, and there cannot Let's talk be a little bit, about, uh, uh, Nicole, about the book. As I said, it's been very warmly received, uh, got rave reviews all over the place, New York Times bestseller. You say it took you seven years of interviews. One of my most, um, the, one of the most memorable uh, sections is when you admit that uh, it kind of made you crazy after a while. Uh, you said, I could live a normal life, but the deeper I ventured into this world of cyber criminality of hacks of the internet, the breakdown of the international system. Uh, those are my words. The more I found myself adrift, um, breaches happened around the clock. Weeks went by when I rarely slept. I must have looked ill. To what extent did this book make you crazy? Why did you do it? And why did you take seven years of conversations to write a book? Well, it's a few things. I mean, first of all, it wasn't so much the book that was making me crazy, although it definitely exacerbated things. It was the beat. It was my day job at the New York Times. Uh, like I said, this is a 24-7 job. Breaches are happening around the clock. Just when you think you've covered you know, the Snowden leaks, uh, the DNC hack happened. And after the DNC hack, um, we had all sorts of disinformation coming from Russia. It just, it never stops. And so part of the reason I wrote the book was to add a narrative to this, to add a chronology, to let people see the patterns I'm seeing, which is that we are getting hit by adversaries from more corners of the globe. We are now among the most targeted nation states on earth. Like I said earlier, it's not necessarily hitting our government agencies so much as the American private sector. Every adversary has their own reason for doing that. China has been ripping off our intellectual property for decades now. Uh, Russia has been infiltrating our grid. They broke into the business networks at our nuclear plants. And now we're unwinding solar winds, the attack we just mentioned. Um, but this wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And I wrote the book to explore uh, just how severe the problem is and the incentive models behind this problem. Because from where I sit in Silicon Valley, the operating thesis at these companies and startups is still move fast and break things. Um, get, keep shipping, get your product to market, capture as much market share as you can before the competition and you will win. But that kind of speed has always been the enemy of cybersecurity. 
And from an individual standpoint, we all just want what we want right now. We don't want to be bothered with software updates and two-factor authentication and password protocols. But the thing that really struck me was that in government, uh, cybersecurity was constantly being sidelined in favor of national security. We were hoarding vulnerabilities in software, bugs that could let us spy on our adversaries or terror cells around the world. And three decades ago, if we found a bug in, say, Huawei's software or hardware, we didn't feel any real reason to let Huawei know that they had a big gaping hole in their software and they should patch it because for the most part, we weren't using Huawei's software or hardware. Uh, but that's no longer the case. You know, Huawei is, is its own special example, but for the most part, the world, thanks to globalization, we're all using Android phones and Zoom and iPhones and Microsoft Windows. You might not have a Windows PC, but Windows is now baked into the grid. So when the US government finds a bug in Windows and they decide to hold on to it so they can spy on a terror network or a Russian diplomat we suspect of being a, a FSB agent, they're also leaving gaps open for Americans and American businesses. And increasingly we were seeing adversaries come after those same holes and use them to hold cities ransom, to get into our grid, um, to take down networks at Pfizer and Merck and FedEx. Um, and so there was really this moral hazard that no one wanted to talk about. And it was, um, we were basically choosing to uh, prioritize our counterintelligence operations over our own cybersecurity. But I knew from my perch at the New York Times that cybersecurity situation was getting very dire. And so I wanted to write this book and democratize these discussions and pull them out of these classified government corridors in the cybersecurity industry and wake up the average American and say, hey, these are the trade-offs being made in the interest of national security, and they are leaving us more vulnerable. In a funny kind of way, when I was reading your book, it reminded me that John le Carré, the great espionage writer of the post-Cold War, of the Cold War age, died uh, a few months ago. Uh, the world that Carré wrote about, the world of George Smiley and of traditional um, MI5, CIA, counterintelligence, no longer exists, doesn't it? As you say, you're democratizing, your book uh, is democratizing uh this issue, but anyone now can be a spy, and everyone is. Um, in terms of Le Carre, there was a similarity and a difference. Certainly, the world is different, but Le Carre also exposed the amorality of the Cold War, suggesting mm -hmm. that the British, the Russians, the Americans, they really weren't very different. Is your book, and I could never really tell this, is your book in any way moral? Are you suggesting that some hackers are worse than others? Well, I'm not saying some are worse than others as much as we are leaving this world, our world, our digital world, up to hackers and their own moral compass. And there's no rules in this trade. There is an entire market uh, dedicated to our vulnerability. And in that market, governments are not regulators. They are customers. They are paying hackers for knowledge of bugs and the code to exploit them to add to their stockpiles so they can use them for counterintelligence operations, but also as ways to implant ourselves in the Iranian grid 
should we need to turn off the lights in Iran? Uh, Russia, like I said, is in our grid. Uh, my colleague David Sanger and I broke a story a few years ago that we are making a loud show of our own hacks into the Russian grid. And so where this leaves us is a place of mutually assured destruction. Um, and the other thing is, is that new independent contractors and cyber criminals also have a role in this world. Like you said, everyone's a spy and cyber criminals are holding our towns and cities hostage for ransomware. So if there's any moral um, perspective I'm offering here, it's just that we might think it's okay to hold on to a hole in some widely used commercial software like Windows because it's getting uh, some of the best counterintelligence we can get. But that hole can also be used by Russia to do damage to our data and our grid and by Russian cyber criminals or Ukrainian cyber criminals to hold our hospitals hostage. And so if that is the case, then why are we not expending more energy on our national cyber defense? And that is ultimately my takeaway from this book is as offense gets more heated, as it accelerates, as we sort of enshrine hacking one another's power grids as a legitimate form of digitally mutually assured destruction, why are we not spending more money, more resources, and dedicating more policy to improving the cyber defense of our own critical infrastructure? Yeah, you're right. If there is a, a really bad guy in the book, as in most books, it's, of course, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. You say that um, he, he gave his hackers full autonomy, and you say Putin Love them. He he took. He's taken to hacking as as ducks do to water. It's particularly suitable for the amorality of his worldview, that Machiavellian world. Is Putin successful though? Are the Russians actually achieving anything, or are they just making ultimately fools of themselves by not really being particularly productive and wasting state resources? No, I think they're being incredibly productive. You know, you really have to go back and understand Putin's motivations. And for that, I would recommend Red Notice by Bill Browder. It's probably the best book I've read on who Putin is and what his goals are. And one of his primary goals is one of distraction to uh, tie us up in our own politics through disinformation and pushing division and conspiracy theories um, and distracting us with hacks of their own, because the more we are tied up in our own politics, the more distracted we are, and the more free reign Putin has to pursue his national agenda, Russia's national agenda. And so in, in terms of disinformation, he has been incredibly successful. We are so tied up in our own politics that we haven't even been able to come up with a coherent cyber strategy. Um, and, you know, the costs of just cyber attacks, for-profit cyber attacks coming largely from Russia, we know they come from Russia or Russia's satellite countries because often the code has been designed to avoid computers with Cyrillic Russian keyboard settings. So they really go out of their way to avoid Russian computers as a target. Those ransomware attacks are costing American businesses now hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and they show no sign of stopping. Now that's just um, from a cybercrime perspective, but the Russian attacks from SolarWinds, 
I, I don't know what the final tally would, will be from that, from the remediation of that. It'll probably be years before we are confident that we've kicked them out of our systems. And that puts us in a really precarious place because how do you operate with communication channels you cannot trust? How do you respond to a Russian cyber attack when you're not even sure that you've kicked them out of the Department of Energy's nuclear lab networks, of um, the Department of Homeland Security's networks? You know, I remember the day of the 2020 election being with a group of reporters who were getting bi-hourly updates from Chad Wolf's team, former Secretary at Homeland Security's team, where they were assuring us that there was no foreign interference in the 2020 election that day. Chris Krebs said, it's just another Tuesday on the internet. Well, now we're learning that at that very moment, Russian intelligence units were reading Chad Wolf's emails. They were inside his email inbox. So, you know, we are in a very precarious place and in large part due to Russian cyber operations. Like so many books, you you went to Ukraine. Ukraine seems to be ground zero in so, so many of these things. March 2019, we had another author on the show recently, the historian Wendy Lauer, who went to the Ukraine to research her book, The the ravine. She was looking at this kind of photograph of a Nazi atrocity, very different from what you were looking at. Did um, did your trip to the Ukraine and your travels around the world did they result in that kind of moral clarity? I know not only the Ukraine. You went to Argentina. You've traveled all over the world for this book. Um, obviously, we're not back in the Second World War and that kind of atrocity, but. Um, did you come did, did did your travels did your travels lead to more moral or less moral clarity? Well, I knew that Russia had always been uh, a target for Russian cyber attacks. Um, you know, in 2014, uh, Russia hacked tried to hack a, a Ukrainian presidential election. They actually planted malware that would have called victory for a far right fringe candidate had Ukraine not detected it an hour before those results were supposed to be reported to the media. I wish we had been paying more attention to that attack because maybe we would have been more, um, had more of our wits about us when Russia attacked the 2016 election. Um, but really what I learned in going to Ukraine is that they've been Russia's test kitchen and they have hacked the Ukrainian grid not once but twice. They have pursued large-scale disinformation in Ukraine. When I was there, there was a huge measles outbreak. And some of it was from Russian trolls infiltrating Facebook groups used by young Ukrainian mothers to push anti-vaccination mess messages. And I'm very worried about what is possibly happening right now as we're all in the midst of our COVID vaccine rollouts in terms of disinformation. But the larger thing I learned from Ukraine, and I really could have only gotten this when I was on the ground speaking to Ukrainian forensic researchers who were unraveling these Russian cyber attacks on the grid and some of their federal agencies, is that when you look at just the forensics, you get a very interesting picture, which is that Russia wasn't just developing a tool and using it on Ukraine. They were testing tools. They would test one method here, one method there, one tool here, one tool there. And at the end of the day, yes, they turned off the lights, but they only did it for a short period of time. Um, it was really a political message to say, hey, we are in your systems and we can shut them down if you ever cross a, a line that we don't, we don't appreciate. 
Um, but the, the larger lesson for me was that Russia was really pursuing the scientific method in Ukraine for its cyber operations. And when I was there, what Ukrainian cybersecurity experts said, and they, they basically almost you know, grabbed me by the ears and shook me to get this through was, we don't think that we are the end target here. We think we're just the dry run. And you in the United States better pay a lot more attention to what's happening here in Ukraine, because we believe you're the end target. Um, and if you don't you know, stop digitizing every possible thing you can do, the damage to United, the United States will be a lot worse than it is here because we still use pen and paper for our elections. We haven't digitized every part of our grid or every hospital record. Um, and we also have a sense of urgency around the Russian cyber threat that you seem to lack in the United States. And I, and that was basically the big lesson I took away was we better pay a lot more attention to what's happening in Ukraine, because I do believe that those attacks were a dry run for future attacks on the United States and some of our closest allies in the West. Um, recently, we also had the, the journalist Leslie Bloom, who has a, a wonderful new book out, Fallout, about uh, John Hirsch's Hiroshima. To what extent uh, are you worried about another nuclear attack through this hacking culture? Uh, what is the risk? Um, is it something that should keep most of us up at night? You know, I like to take a step back. I think I think what's what's like not I shouldn't even use the word likely. I should just say what is possible and could be possible at some point is a, a cyber induced Fukushima type event, you know, a leak of radiation induced by some kind of cyber attack. We've seen that cyber oper Russian cyber operations heading that direction. But like I said, we're also in this period of mutually assured destruction. We are in Russia's grid. They are in our grid. We have made a loud show of the fact we're in their grid. Just to say, should you ever turn the lights off here, we will just turn around and do it right back to you. So I don't actually think that Russia wants to shut off the power here in the United States or create a, a nuclear event um, on par with Chernobyl or the, the Fukushima damage from the Japanese earthquake. But what I worry about more is some kind of lower level coordinated cyber attack on a water treatment facility that could contaminate the water paired with a ransomware attack on a hospital that would prevent doctors from accepting new patients. Um, that kind of thing I think is, is not only possible, we've seen it already happen. It's just that the people pulling it off so far for the most part, have been cyber criminals doing this for profit. We haven't seen a nation state or terrorist try and pull this off, but it's already possible. And we're all just sitting around waiting for it. Um, and I think instead of sitting around waiting for it, we really need to come up with better cyber defenses and better coordination between the private sector and the public sector to defend against that kind of attack. And right now we haven't done anything. In fact, you know, when companies are hit by ransomware attacks, more often than not, almost now, they're paying the ransom. We're enabling cyber criminals. Um, and we've actually seen nation states try and use ransomware to fill their coffers. We saw North Korea um, try to use a, ran a global ransomware attack on that hit British hospitals 
and American law firms. Fortunately, it was neutralized pretty quickly. But there was another major um, operation that we were actually able to tie back to Iranian cyber criminals. So this is all possible. And the thing I worry about is that all of these attacks that are, are already happening will happen in a much more strategic, coordinated way and would effectively present us with a major terrorist attack. Um, and I don't worry so much about a nuclear event. I worry more about sort of this more imminent coordinated attack on, on disparate systems. You're not helping anybody sleep, Nicole, but maybe that's a good thing. Let's end uh, perhaps a little bit more positively on what can be done within the international system. Uh, you suggest that the U.S. may never sign on to a, this is your conclusion, may never sign on to a digital Geneva Convention uh, so long as Russia, China and Iran continue to outsource much of their dirty work to cyber criminals and contractors. But Barring a nuclear catastrophe, which might wake the world up, what is doable in terms of international agreements and cooperation to try to head off the kind of catastrophe that would be bad for everyone from Washington to Beijing to Moscow to Tehran? Well, um, you know, I think we need to lead some of these discussions. Like I say in the book, the United States has been really reticent to sign on to any kind of international norms with countries like Russia and North Korea and Iran and China that outsource so many of their nation state cyber operations to contractors, or in Russia's case, a lot of cyber criminals do their dirty work um, in indictments recently against cyber criminals in Iran. We The indictments were against private companies and their employees who we believe were front companies for the IRGC. So it's really hard to even entertain the idea that the United States would sign on to an agreement whereby it being the, it being the cyber command would, would not conduct attacks on an adversary's grid or hospitals or elections, knowing that Putin could sign on to the same thing and then just turn a blind eye when cyber criminals or contractors pull off those operations for him. So what do we do? I don't think we can just disengage completely. I think we need to engage in international discussions about the fact that we should not be hacking or enshrining one another's power grid or hospitals or elections as legitimate targets. Um, and that there need to be serious, stiff penalties if a nation state conducts that kind of cyber attack. I think that we need to begin those conversations in a really nuanced way. And I don't know if they'll go anywhere, but to this day, you know, the United States has been reticent to entertain even the, the smallest bit of conversation around international cyber norms. I think that's why I spend a lot of my epilogue talking about the technology, talking about the fact that, um, you know, we need to mandate better, stricter cybersecurity standards for the com companies that manage our critical infrastructure. It is pathetic that after the SolarWinds attack, we learned that the password to SolarWinds software update mechanism, the very thing that Russia used for its attack, that the password was SolarWinds123. You know, that is just not acceptable for a company that has such deep access to things like our nuclear labs. Um, so I think we need to kind of come in and focus domestically before we talk about these higher up things about digital Geneva conventions. We need to talk about our own security, because even if we sign on to some elaborate 
international treaty, it's not going to mean much if Russian cyber criminals can still get into SolarWinds software update mechanism. So I think that's where we really need to focus our energy. And it's a great sign that actually today uh, the Biden administration nominated three um, terrific people to serve as national cybersecurity director and a new director for CISA. And Rob Silvers um, will serve as undersecretary at the Department of Homeland Security and focus on cyber. Rob was really involved in responding to the Sony attack sorry, the North Korean attack on Sony and the Chinese attack on the Office of Personal Management a few years ago. Um, and he he did help lead some of the back channel conversations between Obama and Xi Jinping, whereby they did agree for a period of time to cease cyber espionage for industrial trade theft. Um, but then Trump came in and flipped over the table and that agreement was essentially nullified. But it did stick for a period of 18 months and Rob Silvers was partly responsible for that. So it'll be interesting to see what this administration does when it comes to formalizing some kind of agreements around cyber attacks. Well, there you have it. Um, Seven years of interviews, traveling around the world, many hundreds of conversations, huge amount of legwork, very readable book. This is how they tell me the world ends. I hope the world doesn't end. Uh, it's a book about the cyber weapons arms race, a best-selling book by uh, New York Times reporter Nicole uh, Perroth, based in Silicon Valley, Nicole, uh, down the road from me. I'm in San Francisco. Uh, in addition to your book, In These Strange Times, where we're all stuck inside, hopefully for not too much longer, what else should people be reading? Well, like I said, Red Notice, it's not a cybersecurity book, but it's a wonderful primer on the United States' most savvy predator in this realm. Um, I also really enjoyed Andy Greenberg's Sandworm, which looks at the GRU unit that was responsible for turning off the lights in Ukraine, um, and also one of the most costly destructive attacks of all time, an attack in 2017 that cost $10 billion, many of it for American businesses that are still looking to um, get uh, repaid by their insurance policies. And then finally, I'm reading right now, I'm reading Elliot Higgins' We Are Bellingcat um, about Bellingcat, which is an open source intelligence uh, network that was responsible for identifying those um, Russian actors who poisoned Navalny um, and set sort of a new model for how uh, intelligence works in the future. So those are my three picks. Well, Nicole, as long as the world doesn't end in the ne- in the not too distant future, in the next year or two, we'll have to have you back on the show to update us about whether or not the world is a safer place, at least from a digital point of view. Thank you so much. Stay well and, and really appreciate the interview. Thank you so much. Yes. Hopefully we can meet in person soon, sooner than later. <laughs>